welcome to Tuned to Yesterday, delivering programs from radio's golden age. I'm your host, Mark Levonier, and there's true history in this hour. Later on, the story of the first transatlantic telegraph cable on American Adventure, but right now it's the radio show that profiles its own business called Behind the Mic. Legendary announcer Graham McNamee is our host for this NBC Blue Network program, heard on February 9, 1941. Radio's own show, Behind the Mic. Radio, with a switch of a dial, radio brings you tragedy, comedy, entertainment, information, education, a whole world at your command. Ah, but there are stories behind radio, stories behind your favorite program and favorite personalities and radio people you never hear of. Stories as amusing, dramatic, and as interesting as any make-believe stories you hear on the air. And that's what we give you, the human interest, the glamour, the tragedy, the comedy, and information that are behind the mic. And now, presenting a man whose name has been a symbol of the best in radio since the beginning of broadcasting, Graham McNamee. Thank you, Gilbert Martin. And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. This afternoon, Behind the Mic brings you a story behind a broadcast by Ida Bailey Allen. The sound effect of the week, America's best-known woman amateur radio operator, Dorothy Hall. A salute to an old favorite. One of radio's first dramatic programs, Great Moments in History. More mistakes made by your favorite radio people on the air. And finally, a dramatization of how a successful orchestra is organized with Jimmy Darcy as narrator. You'd expect that America's number one home economist, Ida Bailey Allen, who conducts that popular program, Ida Bailey Allen's Homemakers, and whose name is familiar to millions of women would have interesting stories behind her broadcasts. She has many interesting stories, and here she is to tell us one of them, Mrs. Ida Bailey Allen. <laughs> Mrs. Allen, suppose you tell us that story about the lady from Oklahoma. Well, Graham, on one of my programs, I did a broadcast on sensible diets, how to eat and, you know, yet lose weight. Well, right after the broadcast, I received a telephone call from a lady in Oklahoma. She said she was desperate, and she told me... Mrs. Allen, you've got to help me. Yes, my dear, but how? Well, it's a long story, Mrs. Allen, but you must listen to it. Please do. All right, go ahead. Well, my husband used to own a cigar store when I first married him. I kept the books in order and helped in the shop. We didn't make much money, and things were pretty hard because we had four children to take care of. To make a long story short, Mrs. Allen, we owned the land the shop was on and oil was discovered right in our backyard. We became rich practically overnight. Well, you certainly were very lucky. Oh, I don't know about that, Mrs. Allen. Ever since we became rich, my husband changed. He says I don't dress right and I don't know how to entertain his new friends and he says I'm fat. He likes thin women. Oh, I see. Oh, Mrs. <laughs> Allen, our home is breaking up, and you've just got to help me do something. He doesn't even want to come home anymore. What can I do? Well, Mrs. Allen, what did you do? Well, Graham, I became interested in her case, and uh, since I knew she could easily afford it, I suggested that she tell her husband she wanted to take a vacation and see New York, and that she'd be away for about four weeks. Well, sure enough, she did come to New York, and I put her through a whole new regime. Uh, my dear, first of all, here's your diet list, and I want you to stick to it. But, Mrs. Allen, this looks like an awful lot to eat. Do you think I can take off weight that way? Oh, don't worry. You stick to this diet, and you'll not only have plenty to eat, but you'll lose lots of weight in the next four weeks. But it's so tight on me. I can... I can hardly breathe. Madam, this is our very latest in foundation garments. You get so used to it, my dear, that you won't want to do without it. Oh, very well, if you say so. Voilà, madame. Now, how do you like your new coiffure? My what? Your coiffure. Your, uh, what you call, hairdo. Let me look. Oh, 
my goodness, is that me? Ouch! Do you have to slap me that way? Oh. Madame wants a good figure? Well, yes. Madame will have a good figure. Well, my dear, that's what they're wearing, and you've just got to be right up to the minute. Oh, I wonder what John will say when I get home next week. Hello, John. Hello. Why, Mary. <laughs> Well, you act like you don't recognize me. Well, I, I didn't. Why, Mary, what did you do to yourself? Well, don't... Don't you like it? Like it? Why, you're a knockout. I've never seen you look. Boy, oh, boy, what a gal. Wait till the kids see you. They'll love it. She wrote me about the reception she got from her husband... And I hear from her every once in a while, Graham. And that's one home that isn't going to break up. She's become an A number one hostess, and she's very happy. Well, that's a mighty interesting story. Thank you, Ida Bailey Allen. Thank you. The sound effect of the week. From time to time, Behind the Mic presents some unusual sound effect which was used on a program of the past week and tells exactly how it was done. The sound effect this week is a very simple one, one used on so many different programs that we thought you'd like to know exactly how it is done. On the radio serial, The O'Neills, this past week, the sound of wagon wheels going over a country road was used. It sounds like this. This effect was made by actually using two wheels held stationary by an axle while a large circular container filled with gravel is rotated by a motor underneath the wheels and touching them, which has the effect of turning wheels. Uh, what makes this effect so interesting is that unlike a real-life situation in which wagon wheels roll over a road, it is the road which moves, not the wagon. The speed at which the wagon is supposed to move is regulated by the speed at which the container revolves. If you revolve the container filled with gravel faster, the wagon seems to move faster. If you revolve it slowly, the wagon seems to move more slowly. Behind the scenes of radio, such as most listeners know it, are some 65,000 amateur radio operators, men and women, boys and girls with their own transmitters, talking to each other, exchanging gossip, and doing considerably more. Here is one of the best known of these amateurs, Dorothy Hall, to tell us some of the fascinating stories behind amateur radio, Mrs. Dorothy Hall. <laughs> Dorothy, most people seem to have a misconception about what amateur operators are. Uh, they aren't, uh, well, uh, for instance, people not good enough to be professionals in radio, are they? No, Graham. A great many of the amateurs are people who make their living from radio, but who like to have their own private stations and their own homes. They spend hour after hour when their regular work is through, chatting with other amateurs and exchanging information. Well, you talk with people at quite a distance, don't you? That's one of the thrills of having your own transmitter. With the exception of when I was a baby, I've never been out of the New York area. But up until the time the war started, I used to talk regularly with a Chinaman on Banker Island, with amateurs in Australia, and a great many other foreigners. By the way, and at one time or another, I've talked with people in 126 countries. Of course, now with a war on, amateurs are forbidden to communicate with other amateurs outside of the United States and its possessions. Well, how long do you stay on the air yourself? Sometimes 22 to 23 hours at a stretch. Wow. <laughs> but your listening and transmitting sometimes leads to more than just casual conversation, doesn't it, Dorothy? Yes, Graham. Uh, what was your most dramatic experience in amateur radio? Well, one of them was this. On May 24, 1939, I was on the air and was listening when I heard... XC1A, 
XE1A calling CQ, New York. XE1A calling CQ, New York. XE1A, this is W2IXY coming back. W2IXY, this is XE1A. Mexico's greatest flyer, Francisco Sarabia, is on a non-stop flight from Mexico City to Floyd Bennett Field. He is trying to break Amelia Earhart's record of 14 hours. He thinks he can do it in about 10. The Mexican government has asked me to contact amateurs in cities along the line of Sarabia's flight so that they can let us know how he is progressing when he flies overhead. If uh, you are near Floyd Bennett Field, I wonder if you could let me know when he arrives at the airport. I'll keep a, uh, on the lookout for Sarabia, and I'll send a friend over to Floyd Bennett Field. He'll let me know when Sarabia arrives, and I'll let you know immediately. Oh, fine. The markings on his plane are XPAKM. The plane is cream color with red stripes. XE1A, this is W2IXY again. A friend of mine has just phoned me from Floyd Bennett Field. Sarabi arrived at 5.45 p.m. Oh, good, good. Uh, that means he made the flight in 10 hours and 48 minutes. Uh, would you please do me a favor? Yes. Will you get in touch with Sarabia and ask him to speak through your transmitter to my station from where his talk will be broadcast to all of Mexico? <laughs> It's too bad, Mr. Sarabia, that you couldn't talk yesterday to Mexico. They are so eager to hear from you. Yes, that is true, but I, I was still deafened from the roar of the plane. Uh, I couldn't have heard them speaking to me in return. Are you ready now? Yes. We're tuned in. Go ahead. Damas y caballeros, amigos en la República Mexicana, me da grandísimo gusto saludarles desde Nueva York en los Estados Unidos Americanos. Mr. Sarabia, are you leaving soon for a return trip to Mexico? I am leaving tomorrow from the Hoover Airport in Washington. W3FII calling W2IXY. W3FII, this is W2IXY coming back. I'm in Washington, D.C. I know you've been handling the Sarabia transmission, and I have a message for you that you'd better send to Mexico. I've just come from the airport, and... This W2IXY calling XE1I. Mexico City. W2IXY calling Mexico City. W2IXY, this is XE1A coming back. What is it? I've just heard from an amateur in Washington, and I've checked it by calling Floyd Bennett Field. In taking off for his return trip, Mr. Sarabia crashed in the Potomac River. He has been drowned. And it was through your station that Mexico first heard of the death of their greatest flyer? Yes, Graham, it was. I learned about that disaster from the amateur in Washington before Floyd Bennett Field even knew about the tragedy. They had to verify my information by calling Hoover Airport. Well, you've given us a swell picture of the importance of amateur radio, and I want to thank you on behalf of Behind the Mic and its listeners. in radio, presenting odd little true behind-the-mic stories that help make radio sometimes amusing, sometimes exasperating, but always interesting to the people in it. This week's oddity. Again, we present examples of fluffs or mistakes made on the air by your favorite announcers or radio people. Death Johnson, star of Hilltop House, while doing a commercial for a former sponsor, was supposed to say, do you want to look like a wax model in a window? But she said this instead. Do you want to look like a Max Waddle? <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, Ed Hurley, announcing the Alec Templeton program, was to say, this number is designed to put you in a musical mood. But it came out like this one. This number is designed to put you in a musical mood. <laughs> <laughs> one of this afternoon's guests, orchestra leader Jimmy Dossie, in introducing a stout opera star on a musical program, said... This is the first time I've ever had the privilege of introducing an opera steer. <laughs> an announcer who should have said, it is now 8 o'clock, Eastern Daylight Saving Time, did it in this most quaint manner. It is now 8 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time. Oh, nuts, I mean Eastern Daylight Saving Time. <laughs> <laughs> Our own announcer, Gilbert Martin, in signing off behind the mic, was supposed to say original music composed and conducted by Ernie Watson. 
What he said was this. Music condosed and compacted by Ernie Watson. <laughs> and finally, Milton J. Cross, in introducing the NBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by Arturo Toscanini, said, As usual, the orchestra will be conducted by Arturo Toscarini. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the mic salutes a program you love. We in radio believe that radio has a tradition of which it well may be proud. A tradition of good programs which linger fondly in our memory. And so each week, we bring you a star or a part of a program you used to hear, a program you loved. This afternoon, we salute one of radio's first dramatic programs, and possibly its very first, Great Moments in History, written by Henry Fisk Carlton, which was heard from 1926 to 1929. The title of Great Moments is self-explanatory. This being three days before Lincoln's birthday, we have selected a portion of a script entitled Abraham Lincoln, which was presented on February 8, 1927. We're going to bring you that part of the story dealing with the famous William Scott episode exactly as it was done on that program. Great Moments in History. The scene is General Meade's headquarters. Lincoln talking to Meade. Oh, Meade, this is the horrible part of the business. These court-martial findings. Now, this one, Meade, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. William Scott to sleep on post. Meade, why must you have the boy shot? It was a critical post, Mr. President, at a critical time. That breach of discipline might have caused the loss of a regiment. I know, I know. May I talk to the boy? Why, certainly, Mr. President. Orderly. Go to the guardhouse. Bring William Scott. Mr. President, I trust you'll forgive me, but I do hope you understand our point. It was a clear case. If we had found otherwise, army discipline wouldn't be worth a continental. I understand, Meade. You have done your duty. Now I must do mine. You don't know how hard it is to let a human being die when you feel that a stroke of your pen will save him. Did the boy have any excuse? Yes. He was doing double guard after a hard march. And volunteered for the post of a sick friend. Volunteered? Sick friend? Double guard? Well, me, Ty. Yes, come in. Here he is, Mr. President. I'll leave you. Come here, my boy. You are William Scott? Yes, sir. You know who I am? Yes, sir. You've been court-martialed for sleeping on guard. Yes, sir. It's a very serious offense. I couldn't keep awake, sir. We'd marched 20 miles I and... I know, I know. You were doing double guard. Why did you volunteer for double duty? My friend was sick. I thought I could keep awake. He and I came from the same place, sir. Where's that? Vermont. My mother's got a farm down there. I've got her picture here, sir. See? Oh. Yes. Yes. Does she know about this? Oh, please don't, sir. There, now. There, my boy, you're not going to be shot. Not going to be shot? I believe you when you tell me you couldn't keep awake. I'm going to trust you and send you back to your regiment. But I've been put to a great deal of trouble on your account. How are you going to pay my bill? Oh, sir, we, we'll sell the farm and I... I could raise my friends and help me 600, maybe 1,000. My bill is a very large one. Your friends cannot pay it, nor your bounty, nor the farm, nor all your comrades. There's only one man in the world who can pay it, and his name is William Scott. If from this day William Scott does his duty so that when he comes to die, he can look me in the face as he does now and say, I have kept my promise. I have done my duty as a soldier. Then my bill will be paid. Will you make this promise and try to keep it, William Scott? Oh, yes. Yes, Mr. Lincoln. Then go, my boy. You are free. In the Lincoln sketch, the role of Abraham Lincoln was played by Charles Webster, that of William Scott by Frank Butler, and General Meade 
was Jay Justin. When you hear a top-notch radio band, has it ever occurred to you how that band was originally organized, how the band leader welded those men into a unit? Well, here's one of radio's outstanding orchestra leaders to tell you how this is done. He is here through the courtesy of 20 Grand Cigarettes. We introduce the star of your happy birthday program, Jimmy Dorsey. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Jimmy, tell us how a prospective band leader gets a band together. Let's say a man who has never led an orchestra before, but has been a star instrumentalist and wants to have his own band. Well, Graham, this isn't exactly how I got my band together, but in general, it's how a band is very often organized. Now, you say the leader is a star instrumentalist. Yeah, supposing we say uh, a man who's made his reputation as a saxophone player. Well, first he has in mind certain men he'd like to get in his band. Let's call our leader Joe Smith. Joe approaches some musician and says... Now, look, George, I'm going to form a new band. I need a trombone player, and I've got you in mind. Would you like to come with me? Sure, I'd be glad to. I always figured to have a band of your own. You might just as well be a leader and make the real Jack instead of just being featured. Well. I'm sorry, Joe, but I've already signed up to play with Joe Venuti. But uh, Pedro Snyder's band's broken up, and he had a drummer who was terrific. Uh, Phil Gilbert's the name. Why don't you go after him? He'd be glad to go with you. Sure, Joe. I'd be tickled to play clarinet for you. When do we start rehearsing? Hey, wait a minute. I've got to get my band together. Now, look, I need a good trumpet player. Do you know where I can get one? Sure, I know. Just a kid for you. You know, there's a boy playing in a little place called uh, The Hidden Cave. This kid's terrific. Get hold of him. <laughs> through, <laughs> through, <laughs> through friends in the business through personal contact and sometimes by picking up unknowns, our leader gets his band together. Now, the next thing he's got to do is get a good arranger. Practically all the best bands depend on arrangements for a great deal of their appeal. So he approaches an orchestra leader whose style of music he likes. Say, Billy, I think your arrangements are great. Who does them for you? Well, I have done by quite a few fellas, but, well, George Pfeiffer does most of them. Is he exclusive to you? No, he works for other bands. Uh, do you mind if I ask him to do arrangements for me, too? Not at all. Go right ahead. After the leader has his band and his arrangements, he rehearses for about two weeks at Nola Studio. At the end of that time, he finds that some of the musicians don't work well with the rest. Okay, fellas, that's all until tomorrow. Say, Phil Phil, can I speak to you a minute? Look, Phil We've been working out for a couple of weeks now And frankly, I don't think you fit in with our sax section You got a little too much vibrato And your tone's a little harsh You know, I'm sorry, but After the band has been welded into a unit And rehearsed in its arrangements The next thing to do is to get an engagement This is very important <laughs> And the band leader's manager has been working on it all the time. Well, Joe, I uh, got a little spot for you out at Atlantic City. It's a hotel right on the boardwalk. Has it got a wire? Wire? What do you want? Of course it hasn't got a wire. You expect a broadcast when you're first starting out? It'll give you a chance to break in your music and play before an audience, smooth out the rough edges. How's about the dough? Well, <laughs> isn't much at first, but it's a start. Every orchestra leader wants to play in a spot where his music will be broadcast, as it's through radio and recordings that a leader's music obtains popularity. Well, at the end of four weeks, we find that Joe's engagement ends. Now, look, how's about getting me a spot where I can broadcast? I'm working on something, but, well, it hasn't come through yet. In the meantime, though, I've booked some one-night stands for you, nightclubs and public dance halls. One-night stands? Yeah. Well, I'll take them so I can keep the band together. <laughs> they don't work, I'll lose some of them. So Joe charters a bus and does a series of one-night stands, sometimes traveling 500 miles or more between engagements. His manager may stay in New York or travel with him and book dates by phone. But at last, after maybe many months of one-nighters... 
Well, I got it, Joe. I got a it. Spot with a wire? Yeah, the village barnyard. <laughs> they got a wire there from one of the small New York stations. Swell. Now we're getting someplace. <laughs> Meanwhile, as soon as the band starts working at the village barnyard, the manager gets to working send gets to work sending messages to various hotel managers and owners out of town. He asks them to listen to his new band, and he also sends pictures of the orchestra to show that they have hair. <laughs> He'll even wire transportation and expenses to some of the hotel managers so that they can personally come in and see the band work. At last, the band is booked at a good hotel in, uh, let's say, Cincinnati. This spot has a radio wire, too, only it's a, a big radio wire. It may be even a network. The band leader is now starting to develop a little reputation. At last, his manager comes to him and... Joe! Joe, I've got it. Not New York. Yeah, New York. Six weeks at one of the good hotels, starting on the 18th. This is Joe's real break. He may not make much money out of this engagement, but he's being heard by a public which can make him popular. Meanwhile, his manager lines up a recording contract for him. When he and his band are in New York, from now on, they'll make recordings. If the orchestra clicks, their engagement in New York may be extended. Then if the band has, to do, has started to attain real popularity, they'll go out on the road and play college dances, ballroom dances all over the country, Milligan, Nebraska included. <laughs> Jimmy, how thick is a big radio wire? Well, anyway, by this time, oh, I suppose, Jimmy, thing. you're really in the big dough, aren't you? Oh, yeah, Graham. May amount to 60% or more of the gross. That is, sometimes, <laughs> when you're lucky. <laughs> but, uh, you mean two or three thousand bucks for a night? Sure. <laughs> well, of course, now the men in the band are really getting most of the sugar, aren't they, Jimmy? And I'm losing my hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then when the road tour is over, the band may be booked at a spot like the Hotel Pennsylvania or the Waldorf Astoria Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> from then on, from then on, the band goes to radio and theater engagements and whatever fate has in store for it. <laughs> well, thank you, Jimmy Dorsey. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to remember about that big, thick radio wire. <laughs> Thanks for giving us an interesting information and for showing us how a successful orchestra is, is created. And really, Jimmy, congratulations on the way you're packing them in down at the Hotel Pennsylvania. Thank you. <laughs> Next week, Behind the Mic brings you a salute to one of radio's really great programs, The Ever Ready Hour, in which we will recreate this program's most famous broadcast. How difficult it can be to become a successful radio singer, as told by a well-known singing star, and more of the glamour, the comedy, and the tragedy that are found behind the mic. This is Graham McNamee saying good afternoon, all. Behind the Mic is written by Mort Lewis. Original music composed and conducted by Ernie Watson. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Behind the Mic, on Tuned to Yesterday, the 21st episode in the series from February 9, 1941, broadcast on the NBC Blue Network. You're listening to an hour of true history on Tuned to Yesterday. I'm your host, Mark Livonier. Now, as one might expect, the story of the first transatlantic telegraph cable is a rich and interesting one, and during radio's yesteryear, it was tackled on several programs, like on the Adventures and Research show from Westinghouse, profiling the inventor, Cyrus W. Field, in an episode called The Man Who Couldn't Keep Still, and the Hallmark Hall of Fame hosted by Lionel Barrymore, profiled the man in March of 1953. What we'll hear next is American Adventure from December 15, 1955, with the story of Cyrus Field called The Resolute. This from NBC. This is American Adventure, a study of man in the new world, his values and characteristics. Written by John Ely, directed by John Clayton, American Adventure is produced by the Communications Center of the University of North Carolina, Earl Wynn, director. Tonight's program is about the famous American Cyrus Field and is the story of his efforts to lay the Atlantic cable and tie together two continents. July 23rd, 1865, and the British liner Great Eastern lay with steam up but engines silent off Valencia, Ireland. In her hold, she carried 7,000 tons of submarine telegraph cable and a full supply of coal and food for her long, strange voyage to Newfoundland. The meat supply was, of course, largely alive. 
But there was hardly a sound from the 500 chickens, 10 bullocks, 1 milk cow, 114 sheep, 20 pigs, 29 geese, and 14 turkeys. Even the animals seemed to have taken on the tension held by the crewmen who stood without speaking, who watched tensely, waited nervously for the beginning of the vast enterprise, the laying of the Atlantic Cable. Only one man moved confidently, a man with a beard. He stepped out of the main salon as if he hadn't a care in the world. Coffee too cold, but it was a fair breakfast set. Coffee was steaming, Mr. Field. <laughs> Good morning, sailor. Good morning, sir. He was well known, this man. Internationally famous for his failures. One of the most dedicated salesmen of all time. Cyrus, the great Cyrus, the American, Cyrus Field. Have they got the cable spliced to the shore end yet, Mr. Field? I think so, Captain Anderson. Well, then, uh, anything you want to say before we begin laying the cable again? Um, no, thank you. No speeches for me. I, I'm nervous. Are you? Oh, things could hardly be better planned than they are, Captain. Cable's been repeatedly checked. Machinery's yes, in good Cyrus, working. Uh, why don't you say a word of prayer before we start? I've prayed about this so much, Captain, that I uh, don't Helms, think... Helmsman? Yes? Uh, Mr. Cyrus Steele will now lead us in a word of prayer. Aye, aye, sir. Lord, here we are, floating out on the ocean once more. Trying to do something which many reasonable men say cannot be done. And looking to you for help in doing it. Now, Captain Anderson and I have come to you concerning this Atlantic cable before, and you didn't see fit to favor us then. And we've looked to ourselves to see what the fault might be. And we've found many faults, and no reason for you to help us. But there are reasons outside Captain Anderson and Mr. Canning and these men and me. We aim to connect two continents with instant communication, because... We believe better understanding will come between men. Now, if this is a cause which interests you in our behalf, we pledge to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 No doubt about it, Mr. Field. About what, Captain? You're in practice. men in both Europe and America who said that the Atlantic cable could not be laid. At the speed of the ship, the speed at which the cable was unwound in the depth of the ocean would at some point lose synchronization so that the cable would be ripped apart. And the cable itself had to be perfect. The weather had to be good. Oh, there were many reasons why it could not be done. Say there, Mr. Canning. How's it going? Everything well. Cable's going through the machinery smoothly. Has the instrument room reported? Yes, sir. They're in continuous contact with the island station through the entire length of the cable. If anything happens, they'll know about it soon enough. It's a beautiful sound, isn't it? What's that? The cable. It's a beautiful cable, Mr. Canning. My wife says I'm in love with the Atlantic cable. the rolls, Mr. Field. Of course. This is a right nice supper, Seth. Men are about to go blind looking at that cable up there, and this is the first day. What's your speed, Captain? We started at three knots, but we're up to six and a half now. That'll probably be the peak. Yes, we can't play out cable faster than that. How did you ever get into the cable line business anyway, Cyrus? Oh, stumbled in, I reckon. Must have had some reason. Sure isn't any pleasure to be in it. Oh, I suppose I got tired of hanging up my necktie at the same stob every night. You what? When I was 34, Captain Anderson, I had made my fortune. Had retired with my wife and family to a beautiful home. To my friends. Not a worry in the world. Yes? Well, it started small, but it grew, this feeling. One night, I remember hanging up my necktie on the same stob as a hundred nights before. 
And the fact that it was an expensive necktie didn't relieve the fact that I was doing nothing and going nowhere. Where are you going now? Uh, To Newfoundland, dragging a cable. Not drag, Mr. Field. Please don't even mention dragging that cable. You're a blasted fool, Cyrus. Perhaps. Probably lost all your money. Good percentage of it is down with the lost cables. But when we finish laying this one, I'll be back in business. What makes you think you can make it this time when you never made it before, Mr. Field? I have made it before, Seth. Don't think Seth was along on that trip, Cyrus. Made it seven years ago. Does look like you would have heard about it, though, Seth. The people in America almost went crazy. Celebrations and bands and newspapers and, and people shouting and crying. Comparing Mr. Field here to Christopher Columbus. Well, I, I heard something about it. Seth was probably drunk. No, I remember. There was celebrating something in London once when my ship was in port. Something about a cable. I can't remember it very well. Like Mr. Canning said, you were probably drunk. No, I remember. The people were on the streets and everybody was yelling. I figured the queen had had a baby or something. I didn't know. <laughs> Maybe it was Lahore. Anyway, I think it was. Listen. But what's the matter, Mr. Kenny? I thought I heard the machinery kick out upstairs. Nonsense. You couldn't have heard it with all the noise. I... I believe I'll go up on deck and check at any rate. Excuse me. Of course. Good night, Mr. Field. Good night. Believe I'll step out and take a look myself. Oh, he's got me all nervous. I'll finish supper some time later, safe. Aye, sir. I'll see you later too, Cyrus. All right, Captain. Keep sober, Seth. Don't worry about me, Captain Anderson. I hope you don't think I'm short of sense, Mr. Field, for getting that celebration. I was probably on a ship at the time. It didn't last long anyway, Seth. Thought they said three weeks. Yes, but then the cable stopped working. So it was all a failure. I don't like to remember it. Sorry to have brought it up. It was like being on top of the world with your name in the history books and they knock you off. You feel foolish, as if you presume too much. That was the first cable you tried, Mr. Field? No, the third. The first cable broke after about 400 miles. So we had to raise more money. The second cable we tried to lay using two ships. They met in the middle of the ocean. There, each took half the cable, and one started toward Ireland, the other toward Newfoundland. How did that work? We started three times. First time, they got about three miles. Second time, they got about 40. The third time, they got 200 before the cable broke. So, we had to go back and raise some more money. Some of the stockholders wouldn't even come to the meeting. I don't like to remember that either. No, sir. The third cable we laid successfully. And the world went crazy. My wife and I were having the most wonderful time of our lives. I was back home. I was very happy. The president, the royal family, the governors, mayors. And the cable stopped working. Then it started again. Then it stopped. Then it would start and stop and start and stop until I wanted to pull it up with my hands and choke it. And it stopped for good. So I started over. Raised three million dollars, got another cable, got the Great Eastern. Here we are, sir. Yes, sir. I want some more coffee, sir. Yes, sir. That would be very kind of you. Hot coffee. Yes, sir. The Great Eastern was the largest vessel in the world at that time. And to get a message from the testing room to Mr. Canning at the payout machinery, to Captain Alexander on the bridge and then to the engine room, took quite a while. But on the second day of the voyage, a message made that lengthy round, and the message was, there's a fault in the cable. Stop engines and prepare to pull it back in. The cable was returned to the deck one nautical mile an hour. That's one-third the normal walking speed of a human being. The ship with her propellers and side wheels still was at the mercy of wind and the Atlantic, both of which were fortunately calm. After two hours of taking in cable, they cut it so that they might hook up their testing machinery to the island length and see if a proper signal was now possible. The cable was found to be still faulty, so the operation continued. Oh, I've known cable to stop working for two hours. 
No one knew why, and then began again. I see, Mr. Fields. Most likely it's some mistake on shore. The take-up machinery is doing all right, except for the boilers, isn't it? Yes. It's an improvement over the last two trips. But I swear, Mr. Fields, if we get this cable laid, I never want anybody to say cable to me again so long as I live. And if we don't get it laid, I certainly don't want anybody to say it. 2 a.m., the cable was cut again for a second test. It showed that the fault in the cable still lay between the vessel and the island station. The operation was resumed. As the cable came aboard, it was covered with a grayish coating of mud and ooze from the bed of the ocean. The men washed it off and examined the cable foot by foot. Back in Ireland, where the telegraph signal had suddenly stopped, engineers crowded around their equipment. Reporters for English and Continental papers waited. Men who had their money invested in the cable stock fidgeted nervously and went without breakfast. Oh, there were some fine bargains in Atlantic cable stock that morning. As on deck, at one-third the speed of a human walk, the cable came back aboard, mile after mile. After dawn... All right, stop the machinery. Secure the cable and cut it. Prepare it for another test. The test proved the remaining cable was now sound. The engineers in Ireland breathed their weighty sigh of relief as the signal resumed. Reporters hurried to the nearby telegraph stations to wire their reports. Atlantic cable stock went up again. Then, about half an hour after the signal had resumed, it stopped. Well, they knew what was wrong with it or where the fault lay. I tell you, Mr. Field, some men are stupid, some men are smart. We have smart men aboard this ship, but every one of them is stupid. Sixteen hundred miles to go and we can't get fifty with a calm sea and in a shallow part of the ocean. A short time later, the cable again worked properly. No one knew why it had stopped, no one knew why it started again. But the Great Eastern began putting down cable once more. The fast hum of the cable running through the machinery was resumed. Mile after mile, at six nautical miles an hour, the Great Eastern put hours, then days, behind her. It's beautiful the way things are going, Mr. Field. Oh, we'll be in Newfoundland without great delay. This machinery of yours is a marvel, Mr. Cannon. I believe it is. Why, with just a little luck... We'll have the luck, don't worry. But soon we'll get to the edge of the ocean bank, Mr. Field. The depth will drop there from 200 fathoms on down to 700, then to 1,700. Never mind. Never mind, Mr. Cannon. Of course not, Mr. Field. We'll pull into that little harbor in Newfoundland, never mind. I agree. I agree with you. Wonderful name for a harbor, you know. What's its name? Heart's Content. Yes. Heart's Content. Newfoundland. Journal of W.H. Russell, who was aboard, we take the following words. July 27th. Morning broke on a bright, bounding sea and clear blue sky. From the testing room came gratifying reports of the improved insulation of the cable, which had been caused by the immersion of the cable in colder water. Many of the men are planning out journeys to the United States. Others speculate on the probability of sport in Newfoundland. July 28th, a night more of joyous progress, all going successfully. Not a hitch in cable, machinery, or ship. It is worthwhile to go aft and look at cable. As every inch scanned by watchful eyes and noted in books, it flies through the whole apparatus and then in a gentle curve skims the surface of the ocean more than 200 feet astern. Saturday, July 29th. Everything has gone on more admirably during the night. Heart's content on August 5th is certain. Noon, ship's time. Our position is latitude 52 degrees, 33 minutes and 30 seconds. Longitude 27 degrees and 40 minutes. Water 2,000 fathoms or 2 nautical miles. 1.10 p.m., ship's time. An ill-omened activity about the testing room, which has been visible for some time, reached its climax. 
The engines were slowed. In five minutes, the great ship was motionless. In an instant afterwards, everyone was on deck, and the evil tidings flew from lip to lip. Something was wrong with the cable again. What's the pressure on the cable there? Two tons, Mr. Cannon. Is that too much? No, it should take more than that, according to the authorities. What are you thinking about, Mr. Field? Why, at this spot, seven years ago, Mr. Canning, we began the second attempt to lay an Atlantic cable. Seven years ago? And believe it or not, it was on this same day. Is that a fact? Well, now, that is a coincidence. Why do you do it, Cyrus? Why do you keep trying... The last time we had to stop and pick up cable, the fault was a piece of wire not an inch long, which had pierced the cable's insulation. After your years of planning, making preparations, a piece of wire not an inch long threatened the success of the whole thing. Why do you do it? Because someday, Mr. Canning, I'm going to retire to New York or to Boston and join some important club. Get a chair by the fire. And when some young whippersnapper comes up to me and says... Well, sir, and what do you do? I want to say, well, young man, I haven't been doing much since I laid the Atlantic cable. I want to see his expression. Cyrus, that's foolishness. It's big, that's why. It's the biggest thing I've ever heard of. It's something my sons and grandsons can be proud of and point back to and say, I'm Cyrus Field the eighth or the ninth. And people will look up and say, I've heard the name. It's big, Mr. Canning. It's impossible. So is a mountain big and some of them impossible? Men climb mountains, don't they? Of course they do, but only foolish ones. No, no. Men are peculiar creatures. A lion, an elephant. They wouldn't climb a mountain just because it was big or somebody said it was impossible to do. But man would. Man likes to stand on the top of accomplishments and give his lion's roar. Look. Look where I am. Look here. All you past generations of two-legged creatures, you... Crusaders and kings and squires and sea captains and mothers and artisans of a thousand years ago. Look, here. This is what you said a man could not do. It is done. They're the people a thousand years ahead who will be striking at even greater accomplishments and tracing back their history. I will be a part of their history. They will say, and back here, in 1865, a group of men aboard a ship did the impossible and aided the progress of all mankind when they laid the Atlantic cable. People dead and people unborn? I'm staying awake nights, am I? Yes. And for yourself, Mr. Canning, for the faces of the people when you say, well, young man, I haven't done much since I laid the Atlantic cable. 9.30 p.m., ship's time. That part of the cable where the mist of lay was picked up. It was at once cut and reserved to be examined by Mr. Canning. The shore end was spliced and jointed to a fresh end of the cable from the after tank. These operations were finished before midnight, but it was not judged expedient to resume the process of paying out till the morning. As yet, no one knew the nature of the injury to the cable. No one could account for the hitch, but it certainly did not affect anyone's belief in success. We've been a bit delayed, Cyrus, but we're about halfway, and, and with a little luck, oh, they'll be calling you Christopher Columbus again. You'll be the toast of England and America again, Cyrus, with a little luck. On the night of August 2nd, when the vessel was almost two-thirds of the way across, a gale rose from the westward. Then the wind shifted suddenly to the north-northwest. There was a deep fog. The sea was high. Depth of water was 2,000 fathoms. The word went from the test room to Mr. Canning to the captain to the engine room that there was a flaw in the cable and the engines must be stopped. If my engine's gone, I can't hold it near the cable. Can't be helped. I, I can stand up there and twirl the pilot wheel and nothing happens. Secure the cable and get around to the take-up machinery in the bows. Aye, sir. We have to try, Captain. If we pay our cable till this blows over, we'll never get it back in. We're too far along to lose her, Mr. Canning. Good Lord, Captain Anderson. Do you think I don't know where we are? In the salon of the vessel waited Cyrus Field. 
He was still sitting there much later when Captain Anderson and Mr. Canning came in and stood awkwardly nearby. They were drawn and tired. Salt water was on their faces and their clothing was wet. Mr. Canning nodded to Captain Anderson. We lost her, Cyrus. She's broke. She's gone. In two miles of water, Mr. Field. She's gone. told you a story of defeat, ladies and gentlemen, in order to tell you a greater story of victory. The victory belongs to Cyrus Field, who returned to England after this fourth failure and there once more raised the money needed, the three million dollars needed for another cable. This new cable was put aboard the Great Eastern, which one year later lay off Valencia, Ireland, steam up, an engine silent, her crewmen again expectant. On the ship, only one man moved confidently, a man with a beard. He stepped out of the main salon as if he hadn't a care in the world. Coffee too cold, as usual, Seth. Nobody can suit you with coffee, Mr. Field. <laughs> Good morning, sailors. Good morning, sir. He was a well-known man, internationally famous for his failures. One of the most dedicated salesmen of all time. Cyrus, the great Cyrus, the American Cyrus Field, who on his fifth attempt laid the Atlantic Cable. American Adventure, on tuned to yesterday from December 15th, 1955, an NBC episode. And that wraps up this hour of true history on tuned to yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Past. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark LeVonier. Thanks for listening.